Well, for our reading of our sermon text this morning, I need you to turn to five passages. All right? Don't do that. I'm just kidding. I'm going to have you turn to one of the passages, Romans chapter 8. Today, I'm going to do something I haven't done at Randolph Street in I can't remember how long, maybe 2009 or 10. I'm preaching a purely doctrinal sermon, okay? We are going to focus our attention these few moments this morning on the doctrine of assurance. And I trust it will be helpful to you, encouraging to you, challenging, maybe convicting. I'm going to take us to five passages. I'm going to read now. If you're in Romans 8, I'm going to read 1 through 4 and 16 and 17. Before I get there, I'm going to read out of three other passages. These are passages that are going to flow with the order of my sermon. And you're going to hear why I'm reading these passages in light of the sermon subject, the doctrine of assurance. So let us now hear the word of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The doctrine of assurance. May God confirm these things in our hearts this morning. May he instruct our minds that he might be glorified from his people this day. Let us pray together. Well, Father, what passages we have just read, what truths we have been reminded of through songs and through the reading of Scripture this morning. These next few moments, oh, Holy Spirit, would you be gracious to us and enlighten our minds as we tackle a subject, a a clear subject, important, personal subject for each of us. 
the issue of assurance of our salvation. As we look into your word this morning, oh God, would you guide us, give us clarity. Spirit of God, preach to our souls this morning. Reveal, expose, open our eyes. Comfort the weak, humble the strong, give grace to all. And Father, if there are some among us who should not have assurance, in that they have never come to true, genuine, saving faith in Christ, would you use these next few moments to probe all of our hearts and may the end result be of this day, every person in this room, when we walk out of these doors, may our hope rest fully and wholly in Christ. Oh God, do that work. Only you are able to give life to those who are dead. So grant that today. As we give to you now, we do so because you have called us to this work, this mission. So let us give faithfully, let us give sacrificially, And Father, may you use every penny given here, not only for the advancement of the gospel within our local church, but the advancement of the gospel here to the west side of Charleston. And Father, as we have prayed for 12 plus years now, would you use our giving to advance the gospel to the nations? We pray that in the name of your Son and for his glory. Amen. Romans 8, I guess. This feels so awkward for me. Let me confess that up front. Normally, we're just in a text, and we're there, and we're not moving, and we don't reference other passages. We just kind of stay there, and today, I'm going to be in five, six different passages, so I don't know how this ends up. I'm a little lost, and we'll figure it out as we go, which is probably never a good thing for a pastor or a preacher to say, right? Um, If you're interested and you want to be in these texts, 1 John 5, John 3, Ephesians 1, and Romans 8, okay? Here's your outline. Let me just lay it out on the table before we get rolling too much into this. We're dealing with the doctrine of assurance, which I think is a really important issue for us. And and, and many of you may be sitting here and saying right now, it's not important to me at all. Like, I I don't struggle with this. Okay, well, one, you're unusual, okay? And two, you still need to know these truths. And I'm going to explain why in just a moment. You're unusual, and maybe you're sitting there saying, I already knew that, okay? But you need to know these truths. And I'm going to give you a reason in just a moment. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to define what this doctrine is. I'm going to put a basic definition to the doctrine of assurance, and we're going to to flesh that out as we walk through our morning together. I'm going to talk about why I'm preaching this sermon. I'm going to give you three reasons why I'm preaching this sermon today. One reason, that's not on my sermon. I thought there'd be very few people here today, so I was going to get away with a doctrinal sermon, and then a bunch of you showed up. So it's typically a low, low attendance Sunday, but that's not one of my points. Why I'm preaching this sermon. Number three, I'm going to ask the question why we struggle with this issue so much. 
And I'm going to give you five answers to that. These are, you could add a thousand more probably. I'm going to give you five basic answers from my perspective as a pastor here at Randolph Street. Why do we struggle with this particular issue so much? And then at the end of this, we're going to get back into these texts now. That's all introduction, everything I just said to you. At the end of this, is I'm, I'm going to come back and we're going to say, how do we pursue, properly pursue assurance of our salvation? This confidence that should be rising up in us about our life in Christ. How do we properly, I'm going to argue we should pursue it, but how do we pursue? What should be the framework by which we properly think through the assurance of our salvation? So let's give some definition to begin our morning. What do we mean when we speak of assurance? Here's, here's a basic definition. We're speaking of confidence. That's the word I want to kind of trigger on for a little while. Camp on. Confidence. That rises up in a believer that he or she stands right before the holy God. It's a confidence that rises up within the believer that he or she stands right before this holy God. So right up front, you should feel the practicality of this particular doctrine. We're asking the question, how do you know? How do you know today the most pressing question of all eternity. How do you know the answer to it? How do you know for sure that if today you breathed your last breath, you would stand right in eternity before this holy God? I can't think of a more important question for you in your finite human mind to ever ponder. How can I stand right before the holy God. This doctrine then says, okay, how do we know that? This conviction that rises up in us, this right, I think God wants us to have this conviction. I don't think he's in the heavens today wanting us to be unsure. This is not some game that God is playing with us. I think he wants us to have this confidence rising up in us that we do stand right before the holy God, but I think we've we got to get there right. We've got to get there in the right way. So we're going to look at the doctrine of assurance. Now, let me be upfront about all of this. This is not an exhaustive treatment. It's 1116. By any stretch, am I going to be rolling in at 1150 with an exhaustive treatment of the doctrine of assurance? But I hope to give you a few good thoughts, maybe that you can then take out of this and, and continue to probe in the scriptures to get a better understanding of this. Um, oh, it's laying on my desk, and I'm not going to walk up there right now and grab it. A few book recommendations, and the one that pops right back into my mind is a recent book. You can look up the title later. Greg Gilbert wrote a book uh, on this particular issue. Uh, oh, the name's slipping my mind. And then another good resource in any area of this is anything written by Thomas Watson. Let me just encourage you toward that end. Sorry, it's on my desk. So why this sermon? I got three concerns that are rising up in my heart as a pastor here as to why I want to address this particular doctrine. Number one, it is a common question. Over Two decades of pastoral ministry. I'm sure Tim would agree with this. Over his four plus decades of pastoral ministry, 
This has been a fairly common question for me as a pastor. How can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I'm saved? Saved being what I said a moment ago, a right standing with this holy God. How can I know that? I've probably shared this story with you in the past. I won't say names. They were not a member here when I came here, but a particular individual that I ministered to from 2007 all the way until the day that she went to be with the Lord. Incredibly godly, godly individual. I mean, her love and passion for Christ was deep. And it was lasting. And it was long. And until the day she entered into the presence of Christ, she struggled with this issue. I remember coming out of my office up there. Before this building was here, it was a grassy lot. And she was parked right out here. And I walked out right before she had passed. And she had she'd fought cancer. I walked out and I got on my knees. And her husband opened the car door because she was too weak to get out of the car. And I just knelt down beside of her. And this was her issue. This was her issue. She just fought. How? And I'm gonna, I think I know why she fought. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I think I know why she fought this. But it's a common question. How can I know that I'm saved? Now, what I said a moment ago, for you today, that may not be your question. You may be sitting there thinking, well, I know this. There is assurance in my soul. I'm not questioning this today, Jason. Why, do you, why are you trying to make me question? Well, may, maybe so a little bit. But that may not be your question. So number two is for you, why I'm preaching this sermon. I want you to be a good church member. I want you to be a good church member. Here's what I mean by that. If you are engaged with God's people, you are going to come across people. It is inevitable you will come across people within this church who are struggling with this issue. So you need to think well about the scriptures and how you counsel someone and how you shepherd them and and how you strengthen them in their faith. So this issue of the doctrine of assurance isn't just for you, it's for your brothers and sisters in this room of which you then are a minister of the gospel to them. So we're not ready to release all the details on all this, but thanks to Kyle Flanagan, uh, we're going to do this little share a meal challenge in 2020 where we're going to encourage you to get others into your home and you get into others' homes And you engage at meaningful levels. Meaningful. We're going to give you all kinds of thoughts and practical advice and emphasis and all that stuff. But but here's here's what we're aiming at. That you build meaningful relationships. And if you build meaningful relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, this question is going to rise up among a number of conversations that you're going to have. This this pressing reality. How, How can I know that I'm truly a Christian? And I want you to be equipped to answer that question. I want you to have, so if this isn't your struggle, I want you to be ready so that you can be a good church member. Number three, I want to deal with this particular issue because there's a danger in this of false assurance. Maybe that's just the the damning reality of the light theology of the American church, the watered-down gospel that we so often are inundated with as American Christians. But there is a danger of, of, of a false assurance Right, so let me be clear, and we're going to deal with this. Being an American 
or a Republican or a Democrat or a regular church attending tithing moral person is not the basis of what it is to be a Christian. Sometimes within our American context, assurance is born out of this external morality and adherence to this morality. And what happens is a false gospel enters the church. And I want to be, as, as a pastor, few things concern me more than someone having a false assurance. In other words, they've been conned into this American Christianity, but they are not right before the living God. So you'll hear me addressing that throughout this particular sermon. We're still all introduction here. Last question in the introduction. Why do we struggle with this issue? I've got five reasons. Why do we struggle with this particular issue? Before I get into those five reasons, let me say this to you if you're sitting here and you are struggling with this. You're not abnormal. I don't think you are. The second London Confession summarizes this so well. Listen to what it says. This is not the five reasons. Just Now I've got an intro to an intro point, I guess. True believers, this is what the second London Confession says. This is just a summary of Scripture. It's all this is. True believers may have the assurance of their salvations shaken in diverse ways. In varied ways, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken. And it continues. It can be dis- diminished as by negligence in persevering of it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by sudden, by sudden temptation, by God's withdrawing of the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they are never destitute of the seed of God and the life of faith, the love of Christ. But the point of the the, the confession here is to say, this can happen to any of us. True believers may have their assurance shaken at various times. Maybe it's because of some sin that we are walking in, we are struggling with. Maybe it is because of circumstances that fall upon our lives, uncontrollable external circumstances that land hard in our hearts. And our assurance, do I stand right before God, is all of a sudden undermined and shaken. So it's not abnormal. It can be a common occurrence. Here are my five thoughts as to why we struggle. This is the person I was talking about out on the side of the street. This, I think this was her struggle, number one. Often we struggle with assurance because of a deep understanding of God and a holy reverence for who he is. In other words, our fear of God runs deep as we grasp his holiness and his majestic being. And what falls out of that high view of God can sometimes be this question, how can that God save me? We see God, and when we see God in all of his majestic being, we also see our awful sinfulness. And when we see those two truths, the natural question that can rise up between them is this, this, how can he save me? And that's a good question. 
Sometimes our assurance is shaken by a deep and profound reverence for the holiness of God. I'm convinced the individual that I was speaking about a moment ago, that was her struggle. She so deeply loved God. She so deeply respected him and his holiness. It was hard for her to imagine why would he save me? Number two, confession reference this one. Our persistence in sin can undermine our confidence and our assurance. One writer speaks of this when he talks about our persistence in sin. He says it can chase away our assurance. I, I like that imagery. It can, when it enters in, this, this persistent, non-glorifying way of life, when it enters into our hearts, it can chase away assurance. And he says, nothing will darken the soul more than dull, lazy, and negligent walking. So now all of a sudden, this becomes an issue for all of us. Because we're all sinners and we're all tempted toward dull, lazy, negligent walking. And listen, we become dull in our walk with God, then questions are going to start arising because we are losing sight of God's gospel and his grace. It's natural. When sin enters in, it begins, to, it begins to dull us. It begins to turn us away. And we begin to turn away from God and his word. Natural questions begin to rise into our souls. Like, am I saved? Three. The process of sanctification that God has ordained for each of us is difficult and hard. It is not an easy path. God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. And he has ordained for each of us differently various paths of which he is shaping in us more of Christ. And it's hard. It's it's not simple. It's not easy. It's complex. And sometimes the difficulty of the path can cause questions to arise in our heart like, does God love me? I have watched some of you walk through unimaginable suffering. And that question, whether you're bold enough to say it out loud or not, at times can enter the heart. Four, the reason why we struggle is sometimes we become overly introspective. Here's what I mean by this. We, sometimes we become so fixated on ourselves that we lose sight of grace. That is a problem I have experienced. That is a problem I have counseled some of you through. We become so fixated on ourselves, we lose sight of God and his grace and his mercy. Number five, this is for all of us. Why do we struggle with this issue of confidence before God? We are emotional fickle and weak beings that's who we are and just to be blunt most mornings I don't quote unquote feel like I am saved I just don't feel that right so naturally what rises out of these questions and and struggles that we have as we live this life and especially in regard to the doctrine of assurance now that's five you could add all kinds to that one. You could probably add subpoints and subpoints of subpoints as to reasons why you struggle with this issue. 
What I'm going to do for these next few moments, I'm going to walk through a number of texts that I referenced earlier, and we're going to ask ourselves this question, how can I attain this confidence that I stand right before God? What are the things that God has given me to bolster that assurance that today I stand right before God? Again, I'm coming back with this premise. God wants you to have this confidence. He, he wants you to have this assurance that you stand before him today right and holy. I've got two answers to that. Let me give them both. One is the singular work of Christ. We're going to talk about that. And then I'm going to talk about the threefold work of the Spirit. Two points, but it lets me in. I'm going to have like seven or eight points by the time all this is said and done. All right, but you're sitting there now thinking, oh, he just got two points. This is going to be a short sermon. Not so. Right? So you walk into my office tomorrow morning, of which I may not be here. I might be hunting. But just talk. Let's just pretend for a moment. You walk in my office. And you would say to me, Jason, man, I'm struggling. How do I know today that I stand right before God? How can I know this? Well, here is where I'm going to start with you. This singular work of Christ. Our confidence, okay, if you don't hear anything else I say in the sermon, hear these next five minutes. Our confidence of a right standing before God is grounded upon and rooted in the work of Christ. Christian assurance is grounded in this external historical fact of the death and resurrection of Christ for us. We've got to hear that. Our assurance is not grounded in subjective means, internal issues. I'm going to talk about those in a moment. Our assurance is grounded in this objective, external, historical fact of Christ and his life and his obedience before the Father, perfectly fulfilling the law, his death upon the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. That is the ground and the basis of all of our assurance. The text is John 3. Oh, we could go to a hundred texts. I chose John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So, so here is the gospel, right? This creator God, he gives his only son. That little phrase, he, he gave his only son, is a full phrase. Right, to bring the rest of the New Testament into that particular phrase, we know what is being said here. The Father sent his Son. We celebrated this the last few weeks of Advent. The Father sent his Son, and we know the end result of him sending his Son. The work of Christ. Ultimately, his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. God gave his son. And notice the, the, the reality of that, the, the, the fallout of that. So that, verse 16, whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. So this work of God that he gave to us in his son, the fallout of that is if you believe in that, you will never perish but you will have everlasting life. Verse 18. Then this reassuring statement. Whoever believes in him, in Christ, in the Son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So God sends his Son. The Son does the work of the Father. That is all of the Gospel of John. And now, if you believe in that Son that the Father has sent, the promise that is given to us is that we were not condemned, but instead we have everlasting life. Why? Because of the work of the Son, this objective, historical, external reality, the work of Christ is the ground of our assurance. Because of his work, I can stand before this holy God today. And notice, again, the statement of Scripture, I stand before him today not condemned. And that is good news. This is good news to the weary sinner. Back to the pressing question of all humanity. How can I stand right before the holy God? Well, here is the answer, right? This is the answer. We, we turn our eyes to what God has done for us. And what has God done? He has sent his son. And his son has come to die this substitutionary death in our place. Condemned he stood. And the end result of that is that now we stand before God righteous and holy. Or to use the negative phrase, not condemned. Stephen Charnock, in his little classic, a Puritan, in the Puritan Golden Treasury, writes this, Assurance is the fruit that grows out of the root of faith. Now, you understand what he's saying because he's addressing texts like this. Assurance is the fruit that grows out of the root of faith. Faith is the laying hold of Christ. Faith is a laying hold of Christ. It is this, and it brings forth for us, because we lay hold of Christ, it brings forth for us this deep abiding assurance. Because faith says to us, there is nothing inherently worthy in me, but Christ is worthy. Therefore, faith lays hold of Christ. And what Sharnak is pointing us toward here is the same truth that's in John chapter 3. You lay hold of Christ, and then there should be a confidence that rises up in you that you are not condemned because of his work. I don't need to argue this point. I, th- I think you agree with this point. I don't think you're debating this point. I mean, the entire book of Hebrews that we've been preaching through for a couple of years now, the entire book of Hebrews is concerned about this particular issue, calling us repeatedly, repeatedly, Christ is sufficient. His priestly substitutionary work is sufficient. It is enough for eternal salvation. The ground of our assurance is the work of Christ. 
we can be confident we stand right before the holy God, not because of us, but because of Christ. Now, let me give you a text. This is not in our text we read at the beginning of this morning, but Philippians chapter 3. I preached a sermon on this a few months ago, maybe a year ago now. This is, what, this is Paul's summary of everything I just said. Paul writes this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Now listen to this. In order that I may gain Christ, and this is Paul's longing of his heart, and be found in him. For Paul, this is, this is the ground of his assurance, right? Oh, I want to be found in Christ. And then listen to what he says. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes forth from the law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God that depends upon faith. Paul longed to be found in him. And he did not want this righteousness that comes forth from our obedience, whatever that is. He wanted that righteousness that he knew only would come forth from Christ. So if you would come in my office tomorrow morning, you would say, how do I know that I'm saved? And I have said this, I don't want to overstate it, a dozen, 20 times in my pastoral ministry. I'm going to respond to you with this kind of question. Is your hope, your hope in Christ and all that he has accomplished for you? Is that where you're resting? Now notice notice carefully my language. There's some present tense language here. Is your hope in Christ? See, this is, this is where the, the American gospel and the, the, the gospel of the American church is sometimes undermined this issue. Because sometimes, have you believed? Did you trust? Well, if you want assurance, my question for you is going to be this. Is your hope, present tense, is your hope fully and totally in Christ and what he accomplished for you. Do you recognize the only way you can have a right standing before God is because of Christ and his substitutionary death upon the cross? Is that your hope? Brothers and sisters, this, this pursuit of assurance can get very complicated. It can get very, well, and I'm going to make it a little more complicated here in just a moment, but I want to stop before we get into that and say it's not that difficult. True confidence and assurance grows from a resting hope in Christ and him alone. Let's talk about the work of the Spirit. Ten minutes. Our confidence is strengthened by what I'm going to call the threefold work of the Spirit. Some of this I'm going to move through fairly quickly. Our confidence or our assurance is bolstered by this threefold work of the Spirit. The first is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, and that is the sealing work of the Spirit. Listen to what Paul says. And we talk about this text a lot. As a matter of fact, this, this logo is out of Ephesians 1. Three times you see this particular phrase, right? To the praise of his glory, or one time it's to the praise of his glorious grace. 
So in Ephesians 1, tied to our call to worship this morning, our confession, we see the triune work of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is, is choosing, right? He has chosen from before the foundation of the world, the doctrine of election. He has chosen from before the foundation of the world, those whom he would save. Then we see the Son. The Son enters into the picture, and the Son is redeeming, right? This, this work of the cross, And at the end of this lengthy section of Scripture, we find the work of the Spirit, and it says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, here's what happens. When you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, and note this language, it's careful, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, And why is God doing all of this? To the praise of his glory. Why did God choose you? For his glory. Why did Christ die for you? For his glory. Why does the Holy Spirit live in you? For his glory. That's why God has done this. But this, this, this is objective, right? The, these first two points, the work of Christ and this sealing work of the Spirit, these, these are objective works. These are outside of us. These are external. This is looking at the Word of God and believing what God has told us. This hope and the promises of God that rises up in our soul and breeds and births assurance. If I have believed in Christ, if He is my hope, then the promise of this text is clear. It's certain. The Holy Spirit then, he enters and he seals me until the day of redemption. There is this guarantee that rises up in this work of the Spirit. If you're a believer in Christ, this is true of you. If you're an object of God's affection, if you are the recipient of Christ's work, this is true of you. The Holy Spirit indwells you and he has sealed you. And he guarantees that you will arrive at this day of redemption. It is objective truth. Now, here's the problem with this. On Monday morning, when you walk into my office and you say, I'm struggling. How do I know that I'm saved? Well, guess what? I I typically don't wake up on Monday morning and think, oh, I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God. I'm sealed until the day of redemption. No, that's the truth. I have to preach to myself and remind myself of. It's a fight. The doctrine of assurance is a fight. This is truth. This is objective fact. This is God's plan for you, the Christian. If you're here today and you have believed in Christ, he is your hope. The Holy Spirit is in you. Right now. And when you sin, as the, as the confession reminded us, when you sin, you grieve that spirit. But guess what? It doesn't affect his overall mission in your life. He has sealed you. You are guaranteed to arrive at the fullness of your redemption. So if you come in my office tomorrow morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to fight. I'm going to ask you to get your nose in the book. 
and to review and to rehearse the promises. Why do we sing so much here? Have you ever thought of that question? Why do we sing so much here? Well, one, it is a good expression of the corporate body to just give praise to God. But here's one reason we sing so much here and the songs which we sing. I was reflecting on them this morning. There is so much truth in these songs. It's like a big rehearsal every Sunday. We walk in these doors. It's like a big rehearsal of the grace that God has given to us in Christ. So we, we gather here every week just to reflect on those truths and to rehearse those truths. Why? Because in moments of doubt and struggle and confusion and difficulties and despair, oh my, I want those truths to rise up in my heart. I need them. Threefold work of the Spirit. One, His sealing work. Two, and three are a little bit more subjective. Romans chapter 8, if you have your Bibles open, which I don't. The second work of the Spirit of God in birthing this confidence in us. First four verses, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's the, this is the key verse. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his son in the likeness of flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, and here it is, this is the result of the work of the spirit, the result of the work of the, the son in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. When we preached through Romans a few years ago, if you remember, when we got to Romans chapter 8, we talk about this being the chapter of the Spirit. Paul doesn't speak about the Spirit much. He does a little bit, 6 if I remember right, in 7. He doesn't talk a lot about the work of the Spirit. When he gets to chapter 8, man, he just unleashes on the work of the Spirit. More times than any other any other writings of Paul, does he focus in now on the work of the Spirit? And notice what he says in verse number two. This spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. This is the work that the Spirit has done in us. He set us free, we would, we would agree with this, right, from the penalty of sin. But he has also set us free, I think it's just pregnant within this term, he's also set us free from the power of sin. If you flip back to Romans chapter 7, verse 6, it's directly tied to this verse. Paul writes, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which has held us captive, so that, and here it is, we've died, why? So that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The Spirit now is at work within us as children of God. Verse 14 of chapter 8, if you are led by the Spirit, you are sons of God. The Spirit now is at work within us as the children of God. And this work that he is doing in us is freeing us, if you will, from the power of sin in our lives. So that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Here's what I think Paul is saying in this text. The result of God's grace in us and the work of the Spirit frees us to live lives that are pleasing to God. 
frees us to obey God. Something you are never able to do outside of Christ and his work. Something you cannot do outside of the Spirit's work in you. But now, because we have been made alive in Christ and the Spirit of God lives in us, we can live lives in obedience to what God has commanded us. We can live and walk worthy of our calling in Christ. Tom Schreiner in his commentary on Romans 8 writes these words, those freed from the curse of the law are now liberated to keep the law's commands. This is the work of the Spirit. This tangible work of the Spirit of God in us as he frees us to walk with God. Now, all right, I probably go, shouldn't go on a rabbit trail now, but I'm going to. Okay, sometimes we have such a poor view of the gospel. Uh, our poor view of the gospel says this. Well, God saved me from the penalty of sin, but we truncate the gospel when we do not see its full effects up on our lives. This is what we harped on in Romans chapter 6 over and over and over again. Now that we have been saved, quote unquote, now that the Spirit of God lives in us, We are free from the power of sin and we can live lives to the glory of God. That's a result of the gospel work of Jesus. The point of this is this. Observing godliness in our lives. Holiness. Lives that are seeking to obey the law of God for the glory of God. Though it is not the ground of our assurance, it should strengthen our assurance. We see the work of the Spirit in us. If you're a child of God, the Spirit is at work in you. He's not simply indwelt you, guaranteeing your future redemption. He is at work in you. A child of God should observe this work of the Spirit in us, and back to what I said, it is not the ground of our assurance, but it strengthens our assurance. Tom Schreiner, or excuse me, the ESV Study Bible writes this, growing in Christ-like virtues, these, these virtues that are worked in us by the Spirit of God, will give believers increasing confidence that God really has called them and he did elect them to salvation from before the foundation of the world. This observing of this internal work of the Spirit should strengthen the, the confidence we have that indeed we do stand right before God. Now this is subjective, but it's a part of assurance. So let me throw up a few cautions, and I'll speed ahead. When you look inwardly, because that's what I'm asking, that's what I'm saying to you, and you ask the question, do I see the work of the Spirit of God? If you're a believer, you will see it. When you look inwardly, you must be careful not to be short-sighted on this issue, but to see the full picture. Here's what I mean by this. Don't, Don't... Don't hone in on a moment. 
And because and, and, you'll, you'll end up in despair. If you hone in a moment, which is our tendency, right? We get in there and we see our failures and we see our, our, what we lack. But instead of seeing the full picture of who we were outside of Christ and who we not now are in Christ, and to see the evidences of the Spirit of God in us, that should bolster our confidence. It should strengthen our assurance as we objectively look inwardly and say and see the work of the Spirit in us. Two more cautions on that. Don't look into the mirror alone. This is why the church is so important. Being around brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who can likewise look into your life and speak truth to your life and identify, this is a phrase we've used so much here in the past, identify evidences of grace in you. Identify the work of the Spirit in you. You need to be around people who can observe your life and see your life and see the traits of the Spirit's work in you if they are present. All right, I I can't keep going on that. Part of our assurance is confidence, is an honest evaluation into our hearts, to our lives. Do we see the active work of spirit in me? What I would encourage you to do is take texts like the Beatitudes, take texts like the fruit of the spirit. Look in and say, do I see these? (laughs) Talk to other brothers and sisters. Do you see these present in me? I mean, that, that's not the ground of our assurance, but it, but it bolsters, it strengthens our assurance. Last, last point, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Paul writes, back up to verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit are, of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, and then here it is, verse number 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So if I could back out of this for a second, two objective realities, the work of Christ, the sealing work of the Spirit, those are objective realities. Two subjective realities here, the the, the work of the Spirit in me. Do I see evidence of the work of the Spirit in me? And then this last one, this inward testimony of the Spirit that I am indeed a child of God. God has placed, this is Romans 8, God has placed the Holy Spirit in you to assure you, this is the work of the Spirit, to assure you indeed that you are a child of God. That's a part of his primary work in you. This inward testimony of the Holy Spirit in assuring us that we are children, sons and daughters of God. There's a key phrase in all of this. Verse number 15. Let me go back and read it and I'll identify the key phrase. You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption and sons. And here's by whom. There it is. There's the key. Instrumental. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit lives in us. And his He's convincing us of our status before God. He's making us aware that we have received adoption as sons and daughters. By whom? It's it's like his work in us. And listen, this is very subjective. I I get that. 
but Paul wrote this, I didn't. This inward testimony of the scripture, but, uh, of, of the spirit. He, he works, and I've, I've experienced this. I trust you've experienced this. I bet you have that inward work of the spirit where there is this overwhelming sense of deep joy and gratitude. And your only response to God and all of his grace is to cry out, oh, my father. You are my father. Well, why do you do that? By whom? Right? The Spirit of God, this is his, one of his works within you, this inward testimony, verse 16. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is not our work. We don't generate this. The Spirit testifies to our spirit. This mystical work of the Spirit of God, it is unexplainable, but he confirms in us that indeed we are children of God. Doug Moo writes, Paul stresses that our awareness of God as Father comes not from rational consideration, nor from external testimony alone, but from a truth deeply felt and intensely experienced. If some Christians err, he writes, in basing the assurance of their salvation on feelings alone, many others err on basing it on facts and arguments alone. You hear that? Indeed, what Paul says here calls into question whether one can have a genuine experience of God's spirit of adoption without it affecting our emotions. That's the whole idea here, right? We, we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul's use of the term Abba is intentional. As a matter of fact, he, uses the, he keeps the Aramaic word in here. Abba was used by Jewish children referring to their earthly father. One writer notes, it conveyed this distinctive sense of an intimate relationship. And the spirits had worked on that. Convincing us, prodding us, calling us to cry out to our God whom has adopted us. Abba. Father. It's the cry of Christ, isn't it? It's the cry of Christ in the garden. And and, and now he's convincing us that same inward crying out to God, Abba, Father. Listen, there's a danger of false assurance. If your hope is anywhere but in Christ, you have no reason for assurance. None. As a matter of fact, I don't want you to have it. If your hope is anywhere but Christ, there is no assurance for you. We turn our attention to Scripture, and it declares to us, If you believe the Spirit of God seals you until the day of redemption, he's present, he's active within you, he's guarding you, he's possessed you until that day and he will deliver you. Objective facts. Rest there, brothers and sisters. Let your heart linger there. You need to look into the mirror. Not as a source of your assurance, but look into the mirror and say, okay, do I see the work of the Spirit in me? I shouldn't be who I was. I may not be who I want to be. But do I just see a distinct 
transformation. And I look into my life. Again, not the ground, but it strengthens your assurance. And lastly, if you're here this morning and that whole inward testimony of the Spirit working in you and causing to well up in you this idea of, oh, my Father, my Father. If your life is devoid of that, there are serious questions you need to address. There's evaluations that need to happen because, brothers and sisters, that is a gift of God to every one of his children. This inward, comforting, assuring testimony. If you're a believer in Christ, this is your Father. Well, I would say that was a short, but it's 1201 and you'll just roll your eyes. That was a short effort on the doctrine of assurance. If you have questions, Elders will be present here afterwards. Tim and I will be around. Come and talk with us. Don't let this just hit and leave. You're sitting there thinking, man, I have no reason to have assurance. Come and talk with us. If you're struggling, come and talk. We would love to pray with you today and ask for God's kindness upon you. Before we sing our last song, let us pray together. Oh, Father... Would you be pleased this morning to use your word to strengthen your people here at Randolph Street? Lord, for all the categories of individuals that we spoke of, would you do your good work in them? For those who are not battling this issue, would you work in them and equip them to serve their brothers and sisters who are? For those struggling, oh God, if they are true children, would you even use these words this morning, use these texts, use these truths that we have looked upon to bolster and to strengthen their assurance before you this day. And Father, I would pray that if there are those here who hear these words and they are maybe challenging themselves and questioning to examine whether they are genuinely in the faith. Lord, do not, I ask you, oh God, do not let this be like the seed that falls on the ground and the thorns and the thistles of life come and rob it before fruit is produced. But please, Father, let this word land softly in hearts and bring forth genuine repentance and faith in Christ. Thank you for your word today. Uh, We're getting ready to sing a song, Grace That Is Greater Than Our Sin. And God, we know by your word and by experience, we know that your grace is so much greater. And that causes our hearts to rejoice this day. Thank you for your word. Use it now for our lives and for your glory. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.